0: Welcome to the Three Lines of Defence podcast, the show that provides in-depth discussion into the world of audit, compliance and risk. We bring valuable insights, market information and career advice from industry leaders. Here's your host, Mark Enticott. On today's show, we have today June Claraval, founder of Global Financial Crimes Learning Technologies. June is an industry leader in financial crimes, risk and compliance in Asia-Pacific. He has over 25 years of experience in AML, economic sanctions, ABC programs, and has worked for top-tier institutions such as Bank of America, Citibank, UBS, and JP Morgan in various executive and leadership positions. June left his role as Managing Director at Bank of America Merrill Lynch last year to pursue his passion in helping risk and compliance leaders to further develop their work by providing them with training, coaching, and mentoring. June is motivated in exploring the impact of modern technologies like artificial intelligence and the effects it can have on the risk and compliance professionals that work in it. June, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here.
0: I'd like to start off with your early life. Can you share with us a little bit more about growing up in your early component of your life?
1: Sure. Well... Personally, I was born and raised in the Philippines, and uh, I was raised in a military family. So my father, he was uh, well, he retired as a brigadier general in the military academy in the Philippines, which is the the counterpart of West Point in the U.S. So as you could imagine, you know that taught me a lot of good lessons around discipline, around the importance of routine, responsibilities, integrity, and um, I, I always thank him for that. In fact, just coincidentally, it's his birthday today, and And I thank him precisely for those virtues that he passed on.
0: And at what point did you leave the Philippines? You moved to Australia when you were young or what was the the setup? When did you leave the Philippines? And
1: So I left the Philippines close to 20 years ago now. And at that time I was with JP Morgan and they were offering me an opportunity to take on a regional role, which is one of the... I guess, in terms of a turning point in one's career, moving from a country role to a regional role within compliance really opens a lot of doors. So they moved me from the Philippines to Singapore. So that was the first time I left the country in 2002, I think. Interesting.
0: You've got very extensive background in FCC. Can you provide us some insight into the journey that you've been on that, uh, first of all, made you get into banking and financial services, but also within the FCC Field as
1: well sure so if I could give it, this is a good story I think so I'd love to share it and anyone who listens to it says uh, yeah that's interesting I actually started my career in banking in 1993 at Bank of America in the Manila branch in the Philippines. I was the receptionist that was my first job it was the counter yeah receptionist I was receiving guests for the bank um, met a few celebrities there as a result because they were banking with us and uh, I stayed for about four years at the bank in Bank of America at that time. And as you said in my introduction, I actually ended my corporate career at Bank of America as well, this time as a senior executive. So it was full circle. And in between that, that's where I built my compliance career and where I moved to to JP Morgan at some at one point where I became the country head of compliance. And I got really into compliance and financial crimes, I think in early two thousand, where I was at JP Morgan and they circulate New loss rules and regs to compliance people and to finance people. And I got hold of a copy of the draft Patriot Act, the USA Patriot Act. And I, and I read it on my, on my spare time. And I just fell in love with the whole idea of getting involved in a function within the bank that helps prevent really bad things from happening. And that really, to me, drove this passion to pursue a career within financial crimes. Shortly thereafter, by the way, they, they did offer uh, open up a compliance role within financial crimes at J.P. Morgan, which I applied for, and that led me to my opportunity in Singapore to be part of their regional AML team. And how long were you in Singapore for? A couple of years. I was there from uh, 2003, 2004 or five, I think. Right, okay. And then you moved back to Hong Kong
0: or to Hong Kong?
1: Uh, no. So after Singapore, that led me to an opportunity to move to Australia. Uh, one of the things or one of the benefits of working for global banks is that there's a lot of opportunity there for people who demonstrated that they can actually, first of all, you got to do an excellent job on whatever it is that you're currently doing. And once you've done that opportunities to be, to move to other locations, other countries to pursue your career within the bank. And at that time in JP Morgan, they, they wanted to, they wanted to create their regional surveillance team for Asia, and uh, I said, I raised my hand and said, hey, I'd love to be considered, and uh, they took a chance on me. Very good. And how long were you in Australia for? So at that time, that that was a five or six-year stint in Australia, and during that time, I spent half of that at J.P. Morgan building that surveillance team, which still is in existence right now, by the way. I heard they're still there. And then the other half of that six years, I was the, the MLRO for UBS AG, the, the investment bank in Australia.
0: And then I was back to Hong Kong after that?
1: Yes. So to that, that was my first move to Hong Kong after, after that stint in UBS. I was concurrently the MLRO and also the, the regional head for surveillance for UBS in Asia Pacific. And they wanted to further build on that regional surveillance team. And include other functions like testing and the like. And I was tapped to to lead that from Hong Kong. So that led to that opportunity to move to Hong Kong. This was in uh, 2010. Right. Yeah. And uh,
0: what about around mentoring? Has there been a particular person that has been a key mentor in your career? And and if so, what what sort of impact have they had on your both your career and leadership style?
1: I, Mario, I love that question around mentoring because I strongly believe in the importance of mentoring. Absolutely. I, I can go back to a lot of the different stages in my career where they were turning points where I could be, say, struggling with a particular challenge within you know, my job or my career, making tough decisions. And those decisions were made easier, and I was able to to make more effective decisions because I was being mentored by some really great people who made the time actually to mentor me best because that's the other thing. These are very busy executives within the industry and finding the time to mentor you know, the younger generation is not always an easy thing for them. And and some of them do invest in that, in that mentoring. And as a result, you know, they gather a lot of loyalty from from those people. And most of them follow those mentors to you know when they move jobs, for example, or change roles it's a good investment in people.
0: Absolutely. Has there been a significant turning point in your career? You got to the point of before doing your own business of being managing director and, and regional head of FCC for Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Was there a significant turning point in your career that helped continue to develop you
1: on that leadership path? There are a number. The thing that I want to talk about though in regard to that question is the impact that some people who don't believe in you and say that, for example, you, you're not built to be that sort of person, which is required, you know, for that particular role. You don't have the skills. You're just not name it, fill in the blank. I've had a number of examples in my career where when I was shifting from one role to another, Whether it is, you know, to take on the MLRO role, for example, for UBS, someone within JP Morgan, someone that I trusted, actually gave me some feedback to say, June, you're not you're not that type of your surveillance. That is your key strength. You should stay within that that zone and be careful if you go beyond that, because an MLRO is is more client facing in a way, right? Your client is the business and you're giving advice. That person probably with, you know, all good intention is trying to protect me from potentially failing. And, you know, I felt I I used those types of turning points to really drive me forward and, and take the risk and basically prove people wrong. Because what I think is, you know, if, if people have done it, there is a recipe. There is a way to actually get there. You just got to follow the recipe. And I don't think um, anyone should be precluded from taking taking the chance and taking the risk. During your career, you've managed significant
0: size teams. What do you believe are some of the key attributes of a successful
1: leader? So, yeah, you're right. I've, I've managed small teams of, of you know two people to teams as large as 70-something at one point in my career. The key attributes of a leader, there are a few, and you will see from my response impact that my military family background has on me. The first is, of course, integrity. It all starts there. Um, and then leading by example, having a vision, and then having courage. But all of that will only work if you have integrity. Because you can be courageous but have no integrity, and that's a disaster. If you lead by example, you don't have integrity, that's also a disaster. So those, to me, that's uh, those are the, the virtues that I tried to live by as a leader throughout my 26-year career. How much did that then
0: flow into the people that you hired? Oh, were they
1: some of the keys, characteristics
0: or, you know, personalities, traits that you were looking for in individuals that
1: you're hiring? Absolutely. And this is where I can prove this point about self-selection. Once a leader comes in, and in my experience, once I came into say a new team or a new company and I, I bring a set of skills and values with me and such as those that I just described, integrity, Leading by example, you will sense almost immediately which team members actually are drawn to those sets of values. And then they will either follow you to that role, or if they're already part of that existing team, if they have a different set of values, if they were, say, more interested in, you know, furthering their own career versus to the, to the detriment of the team or taking chances that are not really, what's the word? taking risks that are not in alignment with say what the overall vision is for the company or for the team they self-select themselves out of the team almost immediately and I've seen that whether I was you know moving into my role at city or moving into my role at Bank of America
0: what advice would you give to someone if you're restarting your career again now a younger version of yourself what would be the advice that you would give yourself you
1: it's pretty again. easy. Get a mentor. Just really find a mentor and it's easier said than done. And people will ask, well, where do I find them and who should I, who should I pick? Find someone who, first of all, you respect and someone who has demonstrated that they have achieved the results that you actually want. And uh, because some people are really good in their careers and you can follow those types of mentors, but maybe they're not so good in their personal lives, you know, or or they're suffering from health issues as a result. So whatever's important for you or to you, you need to find a mentor that has already demonstrated that they have achieved not just results, but real outstanding results in those areas. So find those mentors and and get close to them.
0: What stage in your career did you first have your mentor?
1: I'd say that would be maybe seven years in, And even then, it was touch and go. In 26 years that I've been in the corporate world, I probably had two, maximum three really good mentors. I've had maybe a dozen managers or more. So it's um, difficult to find those really good mentors that, again, are the types of people you want to be like or achieve the results that they've achieved and are willing to invest the time and their reputations as well on you because being a mentee of someone it involves them opening doors for you for example or making introductions to your or opening or like in my case in terms of the roles that I've moved into it was because my mentors were actually the ones giving me the opportunity and taking the risk on me even though not all the time I you know I didn't really have all the requisite skills at that time
0: so what advice would you give to someone when they're looking for a mentor what should they be looking for
1: So firstly, it's like the first thing I want to say is you need to have one and you need to do whatever it takes to find those mentors, whether it is within the industry, outside the industry. It's like uh, world-class athletes, right? Every world-class athlete has a coach, even though they're already the best in the world. The CEOs of the banks that you work for, they've got coaches, they've got mentors. So do whatever it takes to find them. How do you find them? Going back to what I said in terms of looking at people who have achieved the results that you have, that you want to achieve. That's one. But finding them is just step one. Getting them to actually recognize you or agree to mentor you is, is another. And one of the ways that I've seen work for me in that space is to, again, going back to the military background, it's proving loyalty to someone proving commitment, proving that, uh, you know, you're going to be, I use the term, you know, walk on fire for them. And, you know, if you can prove that, then chances are good that they will invest in you. When you look
0: at technology, it's impacting everything in our lives. What do you see as the future impact of emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence on financial crime compliance?
1: This topic is very close to my heart. So the emerging technologies, automation, AI, machine learning, people, when they hear about that or read about it, they have one of two types of reactions. One is fearful. They're fearful for their jobs. What's going to happen to my career? Are the robots going to replace me? On the other end of the spectrum are people who are just passively, you know, not or being indifferent about the whole thing or not really thinking about what potentially could happen in the future. So I'm very passionate in terms of bringing this at the forefront of people's attention. Financial crimes professionals in particular, they need to prepare for this because the emerging technologies, these are not going to make them obsolete, but it will radically change the roles that they're going to be having in the future, which as a result, then they need to look at their own skills because there's going to be a skills gap as these technologies come in there will be different set of skills that will be required of them versus what they're, you know, currently exhibiting or are used to performing. So this needs to be at the forefront of what they're thinking of. And it's happening. So it's, this is not something that's going to be taking another five, seven, 10 years. This is to me something that they need to look at over the next two, three years or even shorter. There was an article that could just, uh, Go on to this point. There was an article that I read where about two years ago, the CEO of a, a Swiss bank actually said that in his bank, he forecasts that over the next three to five years, there's going to be a reduction of about 40 to 45% in compliance related headcount. And that's going to be as a result of the automation that they're doing, as a result of process reengineering, and as a result of the technology that they're putting in. So. If you are a compliance professional, not just financial crimes, but compliance professional in general, you need to be asking yourself three questions. The first is, is my job or the things that I'm doing, is it fighting new technology? So are you doing, meaning are you doing a lot of, say, manual work? Because if you are, then that is a prime target for automation. The second question you need to be asking yourself is, is my job or the task that I'm doing as part of my job Is it working alongside these new technologies? So if you're an MLRO, for example, I don't believe that um, over the next foreseeable future that MLROs will be obsolete. I think they're going to be. It's probably one of the safest jobs out there in addition to being a regulatory requirement. A lot of the things that an MLRO does is decision-making that needs to be done by a human and cannot be delegated to a machine or a robot. So that's the second question, which part's of my job? work alongside new technology. The third question is, if it's not the first two, the third question is, is your job helping create new technology? Right? Are you a a data engineer, data scientist? Because there's a lot of financial crimes technology jobs now out there that are being created, and there's going to be more that's going to be created in the future. We don't know exactly what those roles are, but as the technology develops, there will be new jobs that are going to be required to run the technology, to maintain the technology, and so on.
0: Do you see the biggest impact more in the area of monitoring and surveillance and what we would traditionally call AML operations areas? Is that where you see the bigger impact around technology? Because I've always had this view that, as you touched on, when it comes to an advisory role, there's only a certain point that technology can assist in that you still need that human ability to go through and understand well what is the issue here, what is the exposure here, what is the risk here, and that's something very difficult to do from a technology point of view. Is that that
1: a fair comment? It is a fair comment, and if I could elaborate a bit more on that. So, In my experience, there are basically four types of roles within financial crimes. You've got the risk management aligned roles, MLRO is a good example. Operationally aligned roles, what you're talking about, that also includes people who are doing investigations. Third is program management roles. And the fourth would be financial crimes compliance technology roles. In terms of the biggest impact with regard to, say, for example, automation, you're right, operationally aligned roles such as level one sanction screening, level one transaction monitoring, prime candidates to be automated. But in addition to that, I think the other angle that we need to look at here is the impact that technology will have, not just within the financial crimes compliance space, i.e. the reg tech things within the program itself, but also the impact that these new technologies are having to the clients that we're dealing with. So we've got fintechs, we've got payment intermediaries, we've got cryptocurrencies, digital currencies that are now proliferating. So in that regard... The risk managers such as MLROs would need to then educate themselves in terms of how these new technologies are impacting client risk, product risk, and channel risk. So if they don't upgrade their skills and their knowledge in that respect, you know, how can these technologies be misused by criminals? Then they become obsolete or they become, well, l- let me just say that, uh, they will not be as secure in the future, even though they are in advisory and risk management roles because they need to upgrade their skills and knowledge in that space.
0: Would it also be fair to say when you look at the movement of technology in terms of we're becoming a far more cashless society with everything going through more around using mobile phone for payments? Obviously, China is very big on WeChat Pay and these other sort of platforms of payment systems. Is it fair to say once you get the KYC piece right and you actually know your client and they're within the banking system, if a lot more transactions are running through traditional banking systems, does the need for people within the FCC area decrease as we become far more automated in a cashless society or not?
1: I think as a a general point, you're right. Again, if you look at, just basically in terms if you look at it, if this was a pyramid in terms of the tasks that uh, financial crimes professionals perform at the lower end of that would be more manual tasks and and the like and as new technologies come in and that would address more of those areas then there will be less need for say the number of investigators investigators that we that we have for example you still need them but you just need fewer of them and they will need different level or different types of skills as a result.
0: What's some of your views on the actions that people in FCC as a professional should take with obviously your prediction around to sort of more future-proof their career as technologies continue to come
1: flow through? Well, first is embrace the change. Don't fight it. Don't fight it. Don't fear it. Don't fight it. But neither should you stay passive about it. Don't wait until the tsunami of, you know, the impact of the technologies come and you go, what happened, right? you got to stay ahead of the curve. And how do you do that? Very simple things you could do. You could understand how AI is impacting your industry. There are some really good courses out there, free. Some of them are free. You could, if you're within the banking sector, you know, talk to vendors. Understand what the technologies are that are being developed currently, and they will demo those for you. Another way would be going back to what I said earlier really understanding how these technologies are impacting not just the way you comply with regulations but also how these technologies are being misused. I had a had a conversation with a with one of the leading FCC professionals globally I think 2 months ago about this point and he and I both agreed that this subject of misusing emerging technologies by criminals and terrorists is not getting enough airtime and enough focus. So if we can bring that attention to to that area and there can be collaboration with different FIUs, the financial intelligence units, collaboration with regulators in the private sector and in terms of and and of course the vendors, the technology vendors in terms of understanding the real impact of this and how it can be misused.
0: And how are you actually, within your role now in your own company, how are you actually helping people around this.
1: Well, raising awareness is the basic thing that I'm doing right now, getting people to just realize that it's it's already here. You know, people say emerging technologies, so it's it's emerged. <laughs> but um of course there's still going to be a lot more development in in terms of those technologies, but awareness is always the first step, right? And understanding that there is this change that is happening and then preparing for that sh- change, staying nimble. And um, just continuously learning about the technology and how it would impact your your job and your career in the future.
0: As a regional head at BAML, and you've held many other senior leadership positions that naturally carry a lot of work pressure and stress. How have you managed that, and what advice would you give to people who are under considerable work pressure and stress?
1: What tips would you give them? So, when I was still with Bank of America. I would attend the the Wolfsburg the Wolfsburg conferences. So you're familiar with Wolfsburg, it's it's the group of twelve or thirteen banks. It's the they create standards for financial crimes globally. And uh whenever I speak to any one of them, any of my counterparts at the breaks, the first thing that most of them say is, We're just tired, or burnt out a few of them even jokingly or maybe not so jokingly say can't wait to retire just you know, <laughs> just wanting to because it is it is a serious issue and whenever either there or if i talk to my direct reports or team members burnout stress overwhelm fatigue it's just it's part of the game now what's the best way to deal with that it's a number of things one is understand that There are ways of dealing with it, and how you deal with it is very personal to you. It's like someone says, you know, you need to have work-life balance. Work-life balance is defined very differently by, you know, different people. So it's very personal to you. So how you deal with it, I guess it goes back to my point about mentoring. This has to be one of those things that you talk to a mentor about and say, how do you deal with it? And if you see them actually dealing with it in a way that is productive, Meaning you see them achieving at work, and at the same time, you know they're not sick, or you know they're not uh, their health is not suffering, and, and they've got they're spending time with their families. You kind of want to know what they're doing. So that's that's one way I think a very effective way of finding out you know, what it is that I should be doing differently, what it is that I should be doing more of, or the things I should stop doing in order to address you know, productivity breakdowns and and burnout and the like. Do you have certain passions
0: outside of work that helped you manage work stress and pressure?
1: Of course. I love to read. I love reading books. I Just over the new years, I, there was this exercise that I conducted. I read it somewhere, which uh, said, you know, try to count the number of books you've, you've read over the course of your lifetime, and then count the number of books that you want to read still for the rest of your lifetime. <laughs> And I, I think I counted about close to a thousand books that I've read since, uh, since I started, you know, having this passion for reading, when I was about thirteen or twelve. And I do want to read maybe a thousand more. So that's a big passion of mine. Another is: are the books
0: extremely varied, or is there a particular theme book that you like? like yeah,
1: biographies I mean, or. Fiction? I love biographies. I mean, that's one of the. The ways that I, I sort of try to learn indirectly from a mentor, right? They, they may not be around anymore. You know, I love biographies about Abraham Lincoln, Churchill, Colin Powell, those types of biographies. I'm not too fond of fiction though, for some reason. I really need to get my head around fiction and reading fiction. And, and I think it's important to read fiction because it, you know, not only Rounds up my whole reading experience, but as they say, life imitates fiction, and yeah, so I'm sure there's something to learn there as well. But yeah, so that's that's definitely one, and the other is spending time with my family, my wife, and my kids, which is the primary reason why I went back to Australia because everyone's back here now. You know, I don't want to be all alone by myself um, in another country, even though you know, I'm I'm in a in a very Good role, you know, in a very prestigious role with a with a prestigious bank. So, spending time with my family, we we play board games. We love playing board games. So I'm not sure if you've heard of the board game Catan. No, uh, let's look it up. It's it's, uh, it's it's really interesting. You'll play it for like three hours, easy. And the third and last thing is, I love um, being in nature. So, whether it's at the beach or in the forest, somewhere, just being around nature helps rejuvenate me and gives me gives me energy.
0: Was it a big decision for you to, as you say just before, you, you left a very prestigious role, senior leadership position, to go and start up your own business? Is that something that has always been in the back of your mind and a passion that you've wanted to do? or How, how did that come about?
1: It's always been a dream of mine to do this. I would have preferred to start it maybe a bit later, maybe two or three years later than I did, but for family reasons I had to to do it sooner. So my because my family came back to Australia, as I've said, and in fact my daughter, a year a few months before I quit, actually had brain surgery. So and she was in Australia and so couldn't go back to Hong Kong. And so I said that that's it, we're we're all going back to Australia. So family is one of the main reasons, but had it not been for that, if I still would have some of my family in Hong Kong, I would have stayed for another few years, because I, I really do love what I do and I love the team that uh, I had at that time. Now, what's the experience been like? It's uh, been a roller coaster, and it's uh, so for those folks who dream about starting their own practice or starting their own company, and they're currently in the, in the corporate world. Let me give you this one piece of advice, whatever it is that you think it will take, it will take probably 10 times that, whether it is the amount of time to get anything started or going or the amount of um, investment that you need to put in, the amount of effort, it's 10 times that. I'll second that, June. You're you're (laughs) absolutely right. (laughs) I know, right. Absolutely.
0: June, thanks so much for providing fantastic insight into your career, journey, leadership, mentoring and and certainly talking about the potential impacts of technology for professionals that work within the FCC space. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today.
1: Thank you, Mark. I, I really enjoyed this conversation and congratulations on the podcast. I think it's going to be fantastic.
0: Thanks for listening to the show. We encourage you to subscribe and feel free to share, rate us and leave a review. If there's anything you'd specifically like us to cover, email us at markenticott at bowenpartners.com. Thank you.